So Macron of 2017 would say things like, there is no French culture. He would say all those comments which made him sound like a Tony Blair 2.0. Over the past years, there's been a remarkable transformation. Now, obviously, his pivot from a kind of a more centre-left candidate to a centre-right president on economic is, is kind of well known. Um, but what is much more remarkable is his pivot on immigration and kind of cultural malaise that uh, Zimbabwe has been bringing up over the past decade. Well, welcome to another bonus episode of Uncommon Decency. This week, I thought we'd, we'd start by um, addressing the, the campaign event that uh, Valérie Pécresse held over the weekend. Francois, uh, what can you tell us? What, what was she there to say? And what is uh, Valérie Pécresse campaigning on? This was a very important meeting. She held it in Paris, in Le Zénith de Paris. Um, which is a very big room. It's important for her because her campaign has not been doing very well. It's important because um, this is a, her first major rally in which she needs to show there is some energy around her campaign, there is some enthusiasm, and more importantly, that she has what it takes to become the next president of France. And she's not been doing so well because I'm not sure if you remember, but when we recorded uh, one of our previous bonus episodes, after she had been picked as the centre-right leader uh, by the Les Républicains membership, she got a massive bump in polls. She went from the low teens to the high teens, even approaching 20%. And some polls were starting to say, well, actually, she has a pretty good shot against Macron in a runoff. So that really bolstered her campaign in December into January. But now it feels like she is not capable of setting her themes, of defending her ideas. So this, this rally was very important because internal criticisms were becoming very strong. Uh, you, uh, increasingly, there's a lot of media attention on the few Les Républicains figures who left Les Républicains to join Eric Zemmour, such as Guillaume Pelletier, who used to be the number two of the party only a few, a few months ago. Um, so she needed to quell that, that distress within the party. And so before I kind of judge the whole thing, I, I, I thought it's quite interesting to, to read what she has focused her campaign on. So she says, and this is a rough translation, she defends the France of cathedrals, the France of Charles Péguy and of Marie Curie. France is also a pavé de Charolais, which is a beef, uh, with some good wine. France is currently at a crossroad. There is no fatality, neither for the great replacement nor for the great déclassement, the great um, economic uh, uh, déclassement. Oh, God. How could I say déclassement? The downturn or the... the um... Yeah, the, lo the loss of status, the great loss of status, essentially. Um, and so she defended a policy of zero visas for all the countries who refuse to take back their illegals in France. And she is threatening to stop any, any uh, granting any visas to those countries. She says, I want a nation that does not break in silence. I defend assimilation because I want to make French citizens of heart and not French citizens of paper. Um, so it's a pretty muscular debate. But however, what became quite apparent is she wasn't rhetorically doing very well. She was reading her prompter. It seemed like a very lackadaisical meeting. Um, and so she needed to do this because until a few weeks ago, she wasn't confident she'd be able to fill up one of those rallies. And she, fe she feared that she might, um, uh, the comparison of Zimur would be unkind to her. And I'm not sure this rally will be the one that is able, able of bolstering her campaign. She's not able of setting her agenda, setting her themes for the campaign. And yeah, it's a tough situation. Um, yeah. yeah, Julian, did, I, th I thought you, you thought you had something interesting to say about the. She had a recent F Financial Times interview, which I think might be interesting as well for this conversation. Yes, and it's a very good contrast with what she said earlier today yeah. at the rally, um, where in that sense, you know, she's speaking to a popular yeah. audience um, and stressing immigration and attempting to adopt that yeah. harder line. In her conversation with the Financial Times, she returned to what we consider traditional conservative talking points yeah. on the economy, 
uh, promising a return to fiscal discipline. Uh. Um, she attempted to link the rhetoric on immigration to efforts to balance the budget, to lower the yeah. welfare bill, and other more traditional arguments that conservative figures have made in the past when pushing for a lower immigration um, number or a tougher immigration policy. She did stress some of those limits on migrants and tougher starters on asylum seekers, but the point of emphasis was more on the economy than it was on immigration, which underscores the point that we said uh, when Pécresse became the nominee, that she has to straddle this divide of being the traditional centre-right mm. figure who talks about economic discipline, whilst also trying to court the elements further to the right who want to talk about cultural decline and the pejorative, sorry, the, excuse me, the um, negative effects of immigration on France's uh, culture and society. Yeah, but you know this is this is so interesting. This this contrast between some of her her uh, 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 some of the comments she made or some of the things she said at that speech uh, this weekend. The contrast between that and um, the more kind of economically neoliberal message that she conveyed to the Financial Times, which, which I think you know it kind of goes goes with the territory and, and the, the kind of paper that the Financial Times is, but. But it, you're really what you're really getting at there, Julian, is the two uh, faces of the, the French right. Right, you've got the hardcore nationalist kind of um, you know socially conservative um, uh, segment of uh, French conservatism, and then you've got the economically neoliberal uh, segment of conservatism, who was I think best um, embodied by François Fillon, mm -hmm. who was a very rightist, but he was economically rightist. He was. You know, he was called, you know, the, a Thatcherite by the French press. And and um, and I, I just think it's so interesting what, what uh, Fossil was, was saying at the beginning, too, because, um, you know, because you, you quoted her as saying um, France is the country of cathedrals. Well, that's that's another kind of talking point of, of François Xavier Bellamy in the um, European Parliament. Uh, he, he says, you know, les, 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 les bâtisseurs de cathédrales, we have to get back to a society that, you know, wants to, uh, you know, build, build cathedrals. And um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's a really, um, it's a fluid combination between the traditionalist and the uh, neoliberal uh, strains of, of French on, on, on a lighter life. note, I, 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 it makes me think of a great moment in Yes Minister. So for those of you who haven't watched the fantastic Yes Minister, it's a TV show uh, based in the 1980s uh, in, in, in the UK, in, in the UK government. And there's a great moment about the press. And you have to know your audience. This is essentially, essentially what is happening. Um, and the quote is, I know exactly who reads the press. The Daily Mirror is read by people who think they run the country. The Garden is read by people who actually think they ought to run the country. The Times is read by the people who actually do run the country. The Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people who run the country. The Financial Times is read by people who own the country. The Morning Star is read by people who think the country ought to be run by another country, aka Russia. The Daily Telegraph is read by people who think it is run by another country. And the Sun, uh, the Sun readers don't really care who runs the country, as long as she's got big tits. Um, so, that's, so that's a brilliant wow. press for you. So, so there's, to some extent, there's a lot of that going on. She's talking to a different audience here. Um, but something which I find really interesting is this double conversation she's having with two different audiences um, talks about something we mentioned here, which is her having to straddle both uh, demographics to some extent. Because what I find is really interesting in this campaign is if you read the meeting, to some extent, it could have been plucked out of a Zemmour video or something. Um, it, she, she, she would sound like Zemmour in some, some aspects. And that is exactly what Macron and his allies are, have been saying over the past few weeks is Pécresse is, is, aping, is aping Zemmour. But at the same time, and I think that's something which is probably more dangerous for her electorally, is the fact a lot of right-wing voters probably suspect she's not um, a true believer. They probably suspect that she only says that for the election and wants an office she will run as a centrist. Um, so I think that is much more powerful electorally because within the Republican, there is a huge chunk of electorate of people who are sympathetic to Zimbabwe, who think who think Zimbabwe actually uh, speaks like them and says the things that need to need to be said and has been saying them for a very long time. I think what something that is much more threatening to Pécresse 
isn't so much the accusation of no, she's another Zimur, which I, I don't think will be that convincing. I think the much more difficult threat for her is the accusation of her being insincere. That she's talking a big right wing game right now, but if she makes it to the to office, she will actually enact those ideas. And that's an accusation that has been lingering on the French right for a very long time. People, um, especially with Jacques Chirac, who was known to be uh, a bit of a uh, populist in campaigns and much more of a centrist in government. So that's something that people will, I think, follow quite closely, especially because there is a lot of sympathy to Zimur, at least Zimur the intellectual, maybe not Zimur the politician. And it's going to be interesting to see how she manages to placate that electorate. But she can't simply ape Zimur or anything like that. I think she needs to set her agenda on the election a lot more. She needs to create her own words, her own uh, agenda, her own policies. Because right now it feels like she's simply placating her right wing by copying Zimur. And at some time, at some point, people will say, well, we'd rather get the um, uh, original rather than the copy. Yeah, but you know, one, one thing that I, I find so um, so telling in the uh, report or relationship between Zemmour and Pécresse is that Zemmour is a very interesting candidate in that he appeals, he, he, he essentially says, you know, I, he, he said it in an interview with it, that I, and, and, and with, which I, I think it really kind of reflects a big uh, pillar of his, of his uh, thought. He said, you know, I was enthused by certain politicians of the RPR, like uh, Pasqua or Séguin. Um, you know, he, I, I, I thought that they could do great, great things for the country. But then along came uh, Jacques Chirac, and he, he sold the country off to the centrists, um, which you could, you could almost even argue that goes all the way back to Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. But, but Chirac was also a big kind of uh, centrist. He was one of the, he was one of the more centrist uh, leaders in the party, right? Um, so there, there's that really interesting uh, uh, relationship where where Zemmour, uh, Zemmour um, says, you know, the FBR had you know great ideas, was a great party for for a while, but then it, it essentially got corrupt, uh, where it got uh, cor- corrupted by the influence of of the centrists. And I want to appeal to an electorate that would have voted for the FBR in the 60s or 70s. Yeah, Julian. Yeah, I wanted to make a comparison to a admittedly on the other side of the political spectrum and also on the other side of the Atlantic. But the way Pécresse is attempting to satisfy both those voices reminds me of a lot of the efforts of Democrats in 2020 Mm -hmm. to try and satisfy the Sanders wing, Mm -hmm. even though many of those voters weren't traditional Democrats um, Mm -hmm. in a bid to try and win the Democratic nomination. And ultimately, many of the pretenders to that progressive crown couldn't do it because they weren't the real thing. They weren't the authentic progressive. And one example that springs immediately to mind is the current vice president, um, Kamala Harris, who it's not particularly relevant to the details, but she made a pledge to uh, get rid of private health insurance, which is a Bernie Sanders policy. And she did it in order to appeal to that wing. But because it wasn't her brand as a politician, it wasn't who she had been as a politician it came off as insincere and she had to backtrack a few days later. And I just wonder if there's a similar lesson for Pécresse in attempting to reach out to those voters that haven't traditionally been voters that she would go after um, in her previous uh, iterations as a politician. Um, she's almost betraying her own brand in attempting to be something she isn't because she sees the momentum behind the anti-immigration voices, the anti-immigration policies, mm-hmm believes that that's what she has to do. Um, and I mean, to a certain extent, looking back at the primaries, it's very clear that there is a large percentage of that Republican Party that would like to see that, but she isn't the right messenger for it. Mm. Well, w- one, one way in which the comparison breaks down, which is why it might have worked with Biden, but not with Pécresse, is what the big glue for Biden was Trump. Um, Trump was such a kind of uh, reprehensible figure for the left. He, he kind of concentrated everything that they, they detested about, about the right. But it was really easy to paper over those differences and create kind of a large tent. The issue is it doesn't work that well with Macron. Some people really hate Macron, don't get me wrong. But he's not that far away. He's not Mélenchon. He's not kind of the total opposite to Pécresse or to Zemmour. Um, so you can't, it's not as easy to build a large tent. 
And also, you know, it's a two-party system, so you have to choose, you know, between choose the lesser evil. In France, you it's like a it's like you know a big supermarket. You've got plenty of options. You don't have to take this product. You've got fifteen different, you know, it's really, uh, you don't have to take uh, le beurre président. You can take uh, le beurre from Brittany. You can take le beurre from something. But you know, there's, there's 115 different um, uh, brands of, of of butter you can take. Um, whereas in America, you have to choose between two types of butter. And if you don't like this one, well, you, you have to take the other one. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no free options, essentially. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm hungry. That's why I've been talking about butter too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she, I mean, th this, this, this is getting into, you know, what, what, I, what I would call is a lead motif of, of, this, of this podcast, really a running theme across several of our, uh, of our bonus episodes, particularly. Mm. But it's, it's this, uh, this um, trend which you, you remark upon, uh, Francois, in a recent essay that you wrote for Palladium. Oh. But this trend in France towards, um, you know, Zemurization, right? This sort of like, you know, sh uh, uh, shift uh, to the right of, of the, the French electorate. Right. And um, and, you, you know, you're, you're saying that Pécresse needs to um, differentiate herself from Zemmour in order to, um, you know, uh, build a campaign of her own. Uh, but um, you remember when when we covered uh, Michel Barnier's run for, yeah. for um, uh, primary run, one of the one of the big um, one of the big things he pledged to do was also to put a moratorium on immigration. So that that tells you a lot about um, really the the. Um, the radicalization of even parts of the French center right. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, it's um, it's an it's, an, it's a piece I've been working on for a long time. I actually started writing some of it in in I think late November, and it got published um, in early February by by Palladium. So the, the link should be down below in the description. So if you want to uh, give a look to it, um, I thought what's quite striking is you compare. Compare Macron of 2017 with Macron of 2022. I think that was my starting point that led me to write this article. The Macron of 2017 would say things like, there is no French culture. Um, there are many cultures in France, or the cultures in France are diverse, but there is no French culture. He would also say stuff like, Angela Merkel saved the collective dignity of France by welcoming um, more than one million refugees into Germany. Sorry, the collective dignity of Europe. He would say all those comments, which made him sound like a Tony Blair 2.0. Um, and over the past years, there's been a remarkable transformation. Now, obviously, his pivot from a kind of a more center-left candidate to a center-right president on economics is, is kind of well-known. Many of the left-wing economists who advised him in 2017 um, have since uh, shared their disappointment. We should actually have one of those left-wing economists on the show soon. Um, so we might be able to ask him a few things about that. But um, that kind of shift on economics hasn't been that surprising. And I think, you know, most, most left-wing voters uh, who voted for him in, in the runoff against Le Pen kind of saw that coming. Uh, but what is much more remarkable is his pivot on immigration and his kind of cultural malaise that uh, Zimbabwe has been bringing up over the past decade or so. Um, it started in 2018 when he, he passed this new bill on immigration. Um, and his minister of the interior back then, Gérard Collomb, said some truly remarkable things. He said, we are being submerged by asylum seekers. And mm -hmm. he rhetorically asked whether France could build a medium-sized city every year to accommodate these refugees. When mm -hmm. Collomb resigned in 2019, he said, today we live side by side, but I fear tomorrow we might live face to face. Yeah, and yeah. during the parliamentary debates over his, his immigration bill, he said the situation over immigration could become irreversible within five to six years, dreading a, a secession or a partition. Yeah, um, which, yeah. which uh, sorry to, to interject, but which is a big campaign theme of uh, Zemmour. Yeah. He, he says that, you know, we are in the short window of time where we can still act to revert and roll back the changes that have been uh, wreaking havoc in, in French society over the, the past few decades. Yeah. And, and that, you know, if, if, if we let another two decades lapse, then it will be too late. It's too late. So this is Macron's former Minister of Interior. So you might say, you know, so what? He got a muscular Minister of Interior. That's what ministers of, interior, of the interior always do. But then, then you see what Macron himself has been saying. Um, he also denounced a creeping secession. 
and he has been really br- ramping up a campaign against uh, 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 le secessionisme, um, yeah. secession. And he he gave an interview to Valor Actuelle, which is a right wing to far right publication, in which he said, "We need to expel all the people who don't belong here." And while he criticized Zemmour's deadly dialectic, he seems to suggest he can't speak like Zemmour because we would be heading towards a civil war. Um, and then something else, which is more debatable, but it's something a, a left wing journalist who is the author of two. Um, pretty well-acclaimed biographies of, of Macron. So this journalist called Marc Indeveld gave an interview in which he says that Macron, on those issues, thinks exactly like Valor Actuel, a far-right publication, in that apparently, in private, he uses the term great replacement and is obsessed with the idea. Now, it's hard to say because he, he he's only mentioned that in this one interview and says he got that from um, uh, aides within the Elysee. Um, but he... Mm. he, he you know, no one has confirmed nor denied that allegation. But it mm. kind of shows how those ideas have been creeping into the Macronist worldview. And mm. there was a remarkable poll, actually, that was published in, in November, in which they asked people what they thought about the concept of great replacement. Now, no, the great replacement is not kind of a benign term. It is loaded. It is very, very loaded. Mm. It was made up by this far-right uh, intellectual in this idea that the elites are helping a replacement of the host population with arrival foreigners. This is not a benign concept. Only like a few months ago, Marine Le Pen would have never used that word. And so this poll said that 67% of the French population dreaded the arrival of a potential correct replacement. And that included a majority of Macron supporters. Um, So... People, people say, you know, this uh, Zemmour is, um, you know, is representing this new right-wing surge, and um, yes, that is true. But he's he's still unlikely to become the next president. Which is what is much more remarkable is to see how Zemmourized French the French political landscape has been um, on those ideas. Yeah, 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 and it's an amazing contrast uh, looking back on the last election campaign yeah. the extent to which the macron of that year was not is not wouldn't recognize the macron today yeah. um and how zimor has totally refashioned the political debate on not just half of the political description because i believe as we've spoken about before if you look at the polls and look at right-wing candidates compared to left-wing candidates yeah. it is a substantial segment of the population that is in that right-wing camp and Zemmour is setting the terms of debate um, from an ideological perspective in terms of the rhetoric that's used mm. and the fact that the great replacement theory is being mentioned by all these prominent candidates on yeah. the right is something that would shock people who have not been following French politics for the last few years. But even people, even French people who have not been following French politics for the last few years would have been, I think... I think like five years ago, if you asked people what they thought of the Great Replacement Theory, they probably wouldn't have heard about it or probably would have been kind of instinctively a bit suspicious. Um, I, I want to push back a little bit on, on the idea that Zimur, who has been shifting the landscape on his own. Um, there is a question of supply and demand here. Um, mm. France is a country that has been rocked by terrorist attacks in 2015, in 2016, in 2017, less so nowadays. Um, but Recently, people remember the assassination of Samuel Petit, this French professor who got decapitated for showing cartoon of Mohammed in a class on religion and freedom of speech. Um, so it's definitely something that's been creeping over the past decade. Um, whether Zemmour popularized those ideas or whether became, or Zemmour became a popular figure because those ideas felt like they represented a reality that people saw uh, on a day-to-day basis is an open question. Um, uh, but it's undeniable some of the ideas like we were talking about it with Picres Picres says we we want zero visas to countries who refuse to take their illegals this is actually something Macron has been trying to do with um, Algeria, Morocco and Tunisia of late Um, but this is remarkable I don't think anyone ever used that that kind of weapon in the past uh, decade in politics or so I think think this this is a remarkable shift in rhetoric and in policy 
Yeah. But I think, which is really, really interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, of the three countries you've mentioned, the one that is demographically bigger, uh, just in terms of the immigration that flows from it towards France is Algeria, right? By far. I mean, Morocco and Tunisia are smaller countries. And, and we were just, as we were uh, discussing you know, off, off the record, I, um, um, I remember Zemmour made a big announcement about this, uh, this idea you've just mentioned of strong arming Algeria into accepting yep. its uh, illegal immigrants who reside in France illegally, but it, it, that, that um, can't return because Algeria won't, won't take them. Um, yep. And I think, and I think part of it, I, 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 I kind of place that that concern that Zemmour expressed in the larger, um, in the larger background of all the things he has said on Algeria. Because I think you have to, in order to understand, to really fully understand Zemmour as a as a political character, you have to understand his uh, his Pinois roots, right? Um, and and you know he's also he's also lambasted Algeria's uh, ruling class for being uh, for for living off of what he calls his memorial rent seeking la rente memorielle right he says he essentially argues that um, Algeria the uh, the um, the Algerian uh, regime is essentially uh, um, uh, you know um, living on because it tells uh, it tells Algerians the lie that France is guilty for everything that happens to Algeria mm-hmm. right yeah. Um, do you want to go? Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't sure if you wanted to jump in there. Um, to your point on Zemmour not quite really setting the, or not being the one that's the main driver and some of it is event-driven and he's mm. reacting to that, I, I would say that the facts that we talk about Zemmour, his ascent in the polls and the fact that he's still continuing to uh, secure these defections from Rassemblement National. Um, I cannot remember the name of the person who defected only today from Marine Le Pen to support Mr. Dumont. Yeah. Uh, Javier, Stefan Javier, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, that one was, was quite obvious. It, it, yeah, it was, was, was going to happen, yeah. Um, I think most dramatically, I'm not sure if we covered it last time, I don't know if it had happened, but Marion Maréchal Le Pen, uh, Marine Le Pen's niece, also saying Zemmour was a better candidate. Um, He's been able to capture the winds of French politics in a truly exceptional manner. Mm. Um, and I think the fact that we're seeing Pécresse, we're seeing Macron adopt these lines. Macron obviously has been doing it since before Zemmour announced he was running for president. Um, but it feels like the reaction is more to the threat posed by Zemmour than it is to Le Pen. Um, and that he really is the leading voice when it comes to pushing these uh, ideas around the future of France being at risk from immigration um, and the need for a sort of cultural reset uh, to preserve the France that he knows. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I want to take a step back from the whole thing because currently um, I'm looking at Politico's poll of polls on the French election, which is a poll ag- aggregator. Uh, Macron is at 25%. And then you get Le Pen at 17%, Pécresse at 15%, Zemmour at 14%. So Zemmour is fourth. Currently, he is, he's, he, he's not going to be in the runoff. It could change. Uh, there's been a bit of a momentum of the past few days, I think, for, for Zemmour after a very long stagnation. Um, but currently, despite all the defections, despite Le Pen is essentially running her campaign on her own, she's still at 17%. That's still very strong. She has built a kind of long-term partnership with a lot of working class who really see her as their defender. And I think they might still be a little bit suspicious of Zemmour. Um, I think they might kind of instinctively associate with some of Zemmour's ideas, but they also, you know, might suspect they, he would kind of throw them, throw them away for, you know, for the, in the name of great capital or something, something, something along those lines. Um, and that's something I don't think Zemmour has been able to, 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 to change in the past few weeks. But what that means, though, is a 17 to 14% gap between Le Pen and Zemmour means it's basically in the margin of error. We could have very different runoff scenarios. We could have Macron against Le Pen, Macron against Pécresse, Macron against Zemmour. And also, it could still happen. Mélenchon is at 10%. 10% is not great. But in the current situation, you probably only need 16, 17, maybe 18% to make it to the runoff. So if... Mélenchon plays it well if he managed to um, ease up the left, essentially, and do what he did in 2017, 
where he essentially sucked off all the electorate of uh, socialists. Um, he could he could be a surprise runoff candidate against Macron. I don't I don't think we should we should write him off. He's a good campaigner. He's shown it before. Um, so yeah, it could be incredibly tight. I could really see Mélenchon going up in the next few weeks and uh, tightening the 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 electorate. I don't see Taubira, the um, one of the left wing candidates, making a break. Hidalgo currently is is polling under the communist the communist party candidate. Um, mm. So I, I don't think there's much to hope there. But I think I think Mélenchon could could. Now the issue they have is if they make it to runoff against anyone, they're not going to make it because the, again, as we talked, the, the um, what's left of the left is just so weak that they can't they can't win the presidency. I think that it's a very depressing state for the French left actually. But it's hard to see how they could win it. But again, it's hard to see how Zemmour could win it. At, at this point, it's hard to see how Macron cannot win does does not win this. So, yeah, I think it's a word of caution. We talk about Zemmourisation, we talk about Zemmourisation. And I think it's an undeniable it has shifted. French politics have, have shifted quite dramatically in the past five years. But in the end, we might still go with, you know, the centre-right candidate. So he may lose the battle, but he'll, he, in the end, he's won the war because we're talking about the issues that he wants to talk mm. about. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I think he would like to talk about something else in immigration and, and identity. I think he, he, won't talk about, he wants to talk about Europe um, France is currently has the presidency of the European Council, so um, uh, the rotating presidency of the European Council. So he'll probably want to talk about that. He'll probably want to talk about uh, you know in, in, uh, industrial sovereignty and stuff like that. Um, but again, even the stuff on, on industrial sovereignty and, and and nuclear power, this is a pretty recent conversion of Macron. Uh, he he wasn't huge on on you know proto protectionism. Because I don't think you'll call it protectionism; it's a form of European protectionism. He wasn't very fond back um, back in 2017, and he wasn't fond of nuclear back then. He said we need to, to phase out of nuclear, and he he actually shut a lot of the nuclear facilities. Now now he has a he has a change of heart um, because he realizes you know nuclear is quite central, especially if we were serious about our um, green green credentials. So yeah, he's changed a lot. Yeah, and, and and obviously a big part of this whole trend that you're describing and that you you elaborate on in, in the essay, this this trend of of Zemmourisation, I think um, has another element to it, which is which is that Macron himself uh, sort of ran as as a centrist candidate coming from the Socialist Party, so obviously a so a, a, um, a left lib, I mean, Blairist, a Blairist, exactly, a Blairist. And um, and and he, he's now governing on, on on several issues. You were you were uh, uh, mentioning some of his rhetoric on on, on immigration, and, and but but he's also governed on some issues domestically as a as a tough sort of um, uh, you know you you were you were talking about um, uh, Gerard Collomb earlier, yeah. um, but even Macron himself, I think, with his law on separatism, was uh, I mean, and, and and the media understood it as such that he was trying to appeal to um, to a, a right wing electorate. Um, so even even Macron is is uh, is is you know included in this trend. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So let let's wrap this up. I think we probably will have another um, uh, at least one on the French election um, because that's something we've, we're following quite closely here. But I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine um, because uh, the episode is called Zemmourist France Bonapartist Macron, and there's one front which Macron has been. Bonapartis is in the energy he's put on the diplomatic front. He's been meeting mm. in Romania with Putin, with uh, calling Zelensky, uh, calling with the Germans, uh, and he's been trying to have all, set up all those different meetings. There was a two-hour meeting um, between mm. Putin this Saturday, um, which is just huge. And obviously, everyone saw the meme with Macron and Putin sitting in this very, very large table. So I guess when Putin says... All the options are on the table. He needs a very, very big table because there's a lot of options, apparently. Um, and so, I mean, for two, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how, what you can talk about for two hours with Putin. I think it must be quite daunting given how tense the situation must be. Um, but there's something which has been interesting, which is, if you remember what happened last summer in Afghanistan, France actually evacuated all of its citizens and allies very early on. I think late, late July, early August. And the Americans said, no, 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 don't worry, you can stay. 
because the Americans thought, you know, the security wasn't as the situation wasn't as bad as as the French thought, uh, and they also believe that doing so you'd be so only undermining the young Afghan Republic. Um, and so France decided to leave early, and in the end, it was vindicated because obviously the situation was 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 untenable. But what is interesting is in this situation, America, the United States, and the United Kingdom actually have been calling their citizens to leave Ukraine, believing an, inv an invasion was potentially imminent. And France actually has been saying the opposite. France has been saying the situation is tense, but I don't think an invasion is imminent. So it's going to be interesting to see if the French get it right this time again. Um, but it shows, I think, this kind of activism um, shows that Macron really, really wants to have a big diplomatic win. And I, in, I think he believes he can play this kind of uh, François Hollandian role of being a, an um, intermediary between Europeans and, and Russia. And, you know, believing that if you talk with him long enough, you'll be able to, to have a diplomatic breakthrough. Um, I think a lot of people have, uh, believe his, his activism is useful. Um, you know, it's, it's better than nothing. The question is, will it de deliver? It's very unclear. Mm -hmm. Julian? Just, yes, on the on the point of the US and the UK, uh, this is actually quite an interesting thing. I know we're going to talk about Europe, but it's a very interesting use of intelligence that you have. There's an article yeah. David Sanger in the New York Times talked about this, how the, essentially it's preemptive use of intelligence or to try and stop something from happening. So, for instance, the British saying that there's a Russian plan to install a puppet regime is an attempt to stop the Russians from doing that because then if it happens, the British can say, see, we told you. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a rather unique use of intelligence that mm. in some ways might work, it might not. It's not really been done before um, by either the US or the UK in this manner, um, but it's an attempt to sort of preempt and counter the Russian disinformation efforts across the border. Um, just moving on to the actual deployment. The, the reverse wishful effect. Wishful the thinking. reverse, yes. Um, <laughs> In terms of the diplomacy, it's been quite interesting. Obviously, I'm sitting here in Washington, yeah. um, and people have been talking about this for weeks on end now, um, to see the different energies of European leaders, the old line from, I think it's Kissinger, of what I want to call Europe, who do I call? Yeah. Because there is no single leader. And although France has the, the, has the rotating presidency right now, yeah. you, know, you would expect Joseph Borrell, um, as High Commissioner for Foreign Affairs, yeah. or von der Leyen, maybe to take an active role in this, but it's Macron of France um, taking an active role. Engagement with Russia is something that he has been pushing for for several years. Um, and then, similarly enough, and you could argue that there is a domestic element to this, the British, um, both Boris Johnson mm. and Liz Truss, the new Foreign Secretary, meeting with their Russian counterparts to try and establish a, a, a British voice and a British perspective, even though the UK is not party to the Minsk Agreement. And then silence amidst all of this is, of course, the Germans, um, for reasons that we've discussed in the past and probably will again. Um, Macron's energy uh, and activism on flying first to Moscow and then to Kiev to meet with Putin and Zelensky, and also conferring with other leaders in Europe. Yeah, Romania. Yeah, it's... It's exactly what the continent needs. And I understand the frustration from his perspective that the pending conflict, shall we say, in Ukraine, as well as the active conflict in Ukraine, yeah. has been turned into a US versus Russia issue, which yeah. uh, some security analysts point out makes a chance of miscalculation and indeed war more likely. Yeah. Because if you bring the US into, um, into the picture, Russia feels more threatened yeah. than if it's just an isolated European incident. So Macron's diplomacy to try and put that European voice, and he has, because he did confer with um, the US and NATO before these meetings, uh, is actually a potentially at least a positive attempt to put Europe back at the heart of the diplo diplomatic negotiations and de-escalate by removing the specter of American involvement. Yeah, and if if you want to be um... Because there's been a lot of accusations thrown around because Macron mentioned the possibility of Finlandization of Ukraine, mm -hmm. essentially making Ukraine a kind of neutral zone politically, which was roughly the status that Finland had during the Cold War. Um, now, obviously, that is, it is, it is a loaded term and a lot of people in Ukraine um, resent it because they feel that they're being abandoned um, and yada, yada, yada. 
But so there's been a lot of pushback from the blob, the American foreign policy establishment of, you know, Macron is trying to sell off Ukraine. Um, and obviously, whenever you talk about foreign policy, there's, there's two and two comparisons in uh, foreign policy that you always get. One is Vietnam. Oh, we're creeping, creeping, creeping. And, you know, we're, we're getting bogged down and it's, it's becoming Vietnam all over again. And the other one is <laughs> Munich. Um, yes, the Munich conference. I was going to say. Yeah, it's, when, it's either Vietnam or Munich. There's nothing in between. But it's all foreign policy yeah. folks. Don't bother studying foreign policy. It's either Vietnam or Munich. And so essentially, Macron is now being accused of being a mini choix, of, uh, of being yeah. ready to abandon Ukraine to the appetite yeah. of, uh, of Russia. Um, maybe that's true. Maybe that is, um, maybe Macron says, you know, Ukraine, unfortunately, has not been granted a generous geography and has to deal with the fact it is going to be surrounded by a monstrous uh, power to its east. But maybe, just maybe, um, what Macron is doing isn't completely uh, uncoordinated with the rest of NATO. Um, maybe, just maybe, uh, it's quite useful to have a kind of a bit of a loose cannon who's throwing ideas, doesn't have to go anywhere, um, but it allows America to have someone pushing that idea without them having to do it themselves. Um, so maybe that's an option. So, um, I mean, you have to be realistic. Ukraine is on the border of Russia. Like, we, we, it's, Ukraine is never going to enter NATO formally, but the ties have been deepening with the West over the past years. And the United States would have been equally uneasy if, let's say, China had been growing ties with Mexico over the past past mm. few years. So, yeah. it, 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 unfortunately for Ukraine, they have been gifted a terrible geography to guarantee their entire sovereignty is protected. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, what, what, what's what's really interesting about um, this whole um, this whole issue of, of Ukraine is that. It's also um, kind of uh, drawing a, I mean, uh, drawing a wedge within the the uh, the American right, right? Uh, you and you know, it's, it's really interesting. You mentioned, um, you know, the people of Ukraine, because ultimately, what uh, what what we what we care about as Europeans is is that you know the the path to become a member state of the EU is open to any nation that wills to uh, that wants to. Um, to do that, but um, but um, you know, it, it, in, in the American right, um, uh, the, 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 there's this wedge that's being that's being drawn with um, the uh, the kind of war hawks who are essentially a uh, another uh, iteration of neoconservatism, right? Uh, Irving Kristol's uh, neoconservatism from the 1970s, and these were mostly former communists who would become conservative and, and who uh, ended up having a very a very sort of liberal internationalist war, uh, view of, of uh, foreign policy. But um, but you know, it's it's really interesting that this issue of Ukraine is driving this wedge within the American right, where you have uh, kind of some of the new voices and the realigned uh, Republican Party are now saying, "Hey, look, you, we we're we're still uh, being uh, infiltrated essentially by these by these war hawks, and we need to you know the, the Republican Party is no longer going to be the party of endless wars, and we shouldn't uh, get involved in Ukraine. You know, Ukraine is too far away, and uh, ultimately, you know, uh, the the what uh, we've and NATO has overextended, right? So, um, yeah. So it's like different uh, different political families in different countries are reacting to this differently. Yeah, yeah. So I think let's wrap this up by asking each and one of you if you think there's going to be a um, invasion in the next few days, next few weeks. Um, let's start with Julian. Oh wow, we've got to make predictions. The one yeah, thing I was hoping wouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it by being slightly flippant and saying, well, there technically already is an invasion. Mm. It will just be continuation of that to secure the buffer in the eastern Ukraine. I don't I don't think we're gonna see a march on Kiev. I think it's just they'll fully annex the segments of eastern Ukraine that have been under civil war to link up um, that part with Crimea and Russia. Okay, okay, uh, Jorge. Well, um, you know what? I, I don't think there's going to be a march on Kiev either, but I think, uh, but I think there, there is going to be uh, an effort to, uh, to prevent uh, Ukraine from sliding west uh, by military means from Russia. I think that Russia is going to, has very clearly indicated that it has the willingness and the ability to mobilize militarily to stop that outcome from, from happening, from ever happening. So, yeah. I, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, go ahead, your, go ahead. your prediction, then I'll come back. No, no, 
go, go, go ahead. I, 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 mine is, is very long, so go ahead. Okay, there's one, uh, uh, my last comparison of the day, I promise. Um, last year, or sorry, maybe, yeah, was it last year? Um, or maybe it was the year before, when Azerbaijan and Armenia went to war again over Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Azeri success prompted mass demonstrations and almost uh, assassination attempts on the Armenian prime minister oh. and destabilize, destabilize the government there. And he won't get reelected, um, Pashana. He might even already resigned. It's been a while since I checked in on Armenian politics. I think you could see a similar situation for Zelensky. If Russia enjoys military success and is able to take that eastern part of the country, there'll be political pressure. Zelensky is battling a lot of uh, people within his own government. Obviously, tackling, tackling corruption was supposed to be the main calling card. Um, and he still faces a lot of pressure to do that. A, a limited invasion could serve as the political end that Putin wants without necessarily having to commit the resources you'd need for a full-scale march to Kiev. Oh. So I, I'm of two minds of this. I, I'm going to pick one side at, at the end, but I think I'm, I'm in two minds because on the one hand, it seems that rationally it is not cost-effective for Russia to, to go on a full-on kind of proper occupation of Ukraine because, you know, it just be, I don't think they can hold Ukraine. It'd be just be so expensive, so difficult. Um, and also the kind of political costs would be, would be huge. Um, and it's very un, unusual compared to previous Russian interventions, which have been quite cheap and quite um, low key. You know, the, the support in Syria, the, the, the mercenaries in Libya, um, even the invasion of, of Georgia in 2008 was quite short-lived and they didn't go to Tbilisi. Um, they, they just crushed the, the Georgian defenses and, and went back. So I think, I think if we do see an invasion, it'd be something kind of a, on a, a smaller scale. But I think the risk yeah. is we've reached a point where people say, you no, know, Putin is bluffing. That is kind of a counterfactual, saying he's not going to invade, he's bluffing. And for a bluff to be credible, he needs to invest a lot of resources. But the issue with that theory is he needs to get something out of this because if he backs down, it is a proper humiliation. Um, he's been massing up 120,000 troops. He's been putting armies all across Ukraine's frontiers. Um, it's been going on for two months. And basically, what has Putin gotten from the West so far? Uh, basically, no permanent troop buildup in Ukraine. Some willingness to discuss um, bomber flights and intermediate range missiles. I mean, this is not this is not a big win. This is this is this is, none, none of this seems very stable, permanent, and it's going to be hard for him to come back to Russia saying, "Hey, great win, you know, uh, we didn't we didn't invade, we just got great concessions." So he's reached a point where I think he kind of is in a situation where he needs larger concessions for him to work. And now the invasion might not take the form of invasion; it might be kind of massive cyber attacks. Um, uh, propaganda campaigns, uh, maybe even supporting some kind of, of coup, as as Julian talked about earlier. Um, but yeah, but I think I think at this point it seems that it's we're pointing towards some kind of intervention from Russia against the Ukraine. Maybe not a proper invasion or something, but Putin needs a win. I think. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's uh, it can only go in one one of three ways, right? One of us will be right. It's you know we we've got different um, different predictions here, and all all are are you know likely in their own way, and um, uh, these are very uncertain times. Yeah, and then next week we discover that Zemmour flies into Moscow and says, "Don't invade Ukraine," and big kumbaya, and it doesn't happen. Then he becomes president of France. He becomes president of France because Putin uh, supports a, a Zemmourist coup, uh, and he becomes the president of France. Let me try to, to, um, to wed the two issues we've discussed today together and, and ask you the, the following. Is Zemmour um, as Russia-friendly as Marine Le Pen has always been, or is he? What, what, where does he stand? I suspect Zemmour is more Russia-friendly intellectually than Marine Le Pen. Unfortunately, Marine yeah. Le Pen had some Russian bankers, so she's yeah. not in a great position to say anything tough against Russia. I, I suspect Zemmour kind of intellectually is very much turned towards Russia for different reasons, because of Christianity, yeah. because of you know, the opposition to, to Islamism, um, because of some kind of vision of realpolitik. 
Um, mm. For obvious reasons, I think I think uh, no, and because because he's very suspicious of the Americans and so on and so on. Um, I think Le Pen quite simply doesn't have much of a choice because she, for most of her political career, depended on Russian banks um, because she wasn't able to get any loans from French banks. So she, I, I don't I don't think she can afford to antagonize her banker. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. That's, that's, uh, you know, but, but what I've heard though, and from on the other side of the story is that the reason she had to go to these Russian bankers is because the French ones wouldn't lend her money, wouldn't lend her campaign yeah. money. So, yeah. so it, to me, I mean, the, the fact that she is kind of tethered to the Russian financial system, it, I think it, it happened by, by default. I mean, by, yeah. by. No, no, I, I don't think she wanted to. I think she could have gotten money from a French bank. She would have done that for sure. Um, it, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's giving Russia an increased leverage on French politics by making sure that only Russian banks will be able, willing to give money to to a French political candidate, one that reached for a runoff in 2017. I think I think that's a bit of a political angle, if you want to ask me. Yeah, yeah. So I think we can we can wrap it up. Thanks a lot, um, Julian, for coming back on the show. Um, I want to thank you, Jorge, but you are contractually obliged to come here every week. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, a week of thank you to you and uh, a strong thank you to all our listeners who have endured our um, terrible historical comparisons and our terrible yes minister jokes um, thank you so much for enduring through with us special thanks to our wonderful patrons who have allowed us to do some fantastic stuff some fantastic episodes um, to create this structure we now have and um, we've got plenty of great projects we are looking to update our digital and physical equipment so if you want to help us please join the the uncommonly decent army of patrons we have you'd be very very much appreciated if you can't afford that uh, don't worry you can write a review on apple Podcasts. these are very useful you can subscribe on spotify you can share the show with a friend the good old-fashioned way and uh, so yeah thank you so much thank you julian thank you very much for having me thank you jorge and to Thank you. all of our listeners, I say see you.